please, to Ephesians in your Bible this morning. I'm going to continue our walk through what God did for you when you first trusted in Christ. We're calling it the study of the riches of divine grace. And Ephesians is a great place to find uh, the contents of this teaching in God's word because so much of it is what you already have in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, as being part of the body of Christ. And so what do you do with it, chapters 4 through 6? We're talking about, in this study, the blessings that the Bible describes of our association with uh, our new birth. I just saw your face. You made it happen. Thank you, Jeff Lukoski, for everything. And uh, what time did you get to bed last night, this morning? 3.30? Oh. So, okay. So, yeah. He got three hours sleep. It's good. No sleeping in the message. All right. Blessings with our new birth that we have because we're believers in Christ that God has already done for us. Remember, the great application is look what God has already done. If you really want to walk with him, you need to live a constant life of infinite gratitude. I mean, you can't bring infinite gratitude, but you owe an infinite debt of gratitude for what he's already done. And so we're talking about the new birth now, what the New Testament says about the fact that you're born again. And we have the born again language of John 3, which we've been through. We have the idea that we're sons of God and what that looks like even in the uh, return of Jesus Christ to earth in his second advent, he brings us with him to set the earth free from its corruption. And that's part of the package of being sons of God. And now we're talking about the fact that God made you new, the new creation. Do you see yourself as new because you've trusted in Christ and more importantly because he has made you new? Because that's what the New Testament teaches. And if we don't think that of ourselves, we're not thinking in terms of reality. And I didn't say you feel new, so you learned it because you felt it. I said God told you, so let's look at how he tells you. I want to talk about the new creation and the, the, really the substance of this talk this morning. What should I do given that I am a new creature in Christ? I'm assuming that you believe it, and I'll tell you why I think so. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you have the famous passage that keeps us very clear from any system of theology or presentation of the gospel that asks someone to do anything besides trust in Christ for their salvation. You can't get a paddle in the water to save yourself. You cannot add a single brick to the edifice of our salvation. You cannot borrow a little time from Jesus on the cross. It is only Christ, what he did for you, and what you do about that is trust in him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, I think, is perhaps the clearest place that teaches it. And last time we spoke about this, I couldn't show you this, this excellent visual that I'm putting on the screen, so I thought I would have to review with you because our equipment failed or I failed it. Mike once told me that in the Navy, they try to be at least on parity in terms of being as, as intelligent as their equipment. And in the Army, we said we have to be smarter than our equipment, but the Navy, they're, they're going for parity. And, um, and unfortunately with me and this equipment, sometimes it's not, I'm not even close. So, um, for by grace are you having been saved is the Greek way it said. He could have said, for by grace are you saved in a more straightforward manner, but he does it. He says it in a special way. So I've brought it out for you to show you that he's emphasizing with his Greek instruction the present results. He's emphasizing that you are saved. No, I, I didn't say he's emphasizing that you are saved. It's that you 
are saved. And that's what this paraphrastic instruction does. You are having been saved. And it's correctly translated, you've been saved. It's perfective. But it's past completed action with present results. You are saved. So that's, again, why he uses this construction. Through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that... This is where people get confused. They don't, we don't study closely. We're not going to d- apply any hermeneutical principles of, of interpretation or grammar. That's work Americans aren't willing to do. And so we come up with all kinds of bad theology because we don't really look at the text. But this word is in the neuter, and this word is in the feminine gender, and it cannot mean this cannot refer to the faith. It cannot be in Ephesians 2.8 that faith is a gift that he's referring to. It can't be because this is a neuter uh, pronoun and it's a feminine noun. And you can't do that. They, they don't do that in Greek. So what is it? So that something is not from yourselves, yourselves, of God it is a gift. And so that must refer to the entire clause. And that which is a gift from God is by grace through faith salvation, the package, the whole thing is a gift of God. You don't do it except you don't save yourself except that you do have to exercise faith, but you don't bring grace and you don't save, but you do have to have faith. There's nowhere in the Bible that says God believes for you. Understand that you, we are responsible to trust in Jesus Christ as our savior and that is the basis for God's judgment. If we don't, does anybody know a verse that says it's the standard of judgment? Anybody know a verse in John chapter 3 that says, this is the reason for the judgment? 3.16 says that God loved the world this way he gave his son, that whoever believes. Verse 17 said he didn't come in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, John 3.18 says, but this is why there's judgment, that they haven't believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. Never let someone tell you that faith is this, this automaton thing that God is, God is, you know, RC, you know, controlling you where you don't really have a choice or a responsibility because the text says you do have a choice. You do have a responsibility and the entire package is the grace of God. Now, I don't want to get into the theology much more than that, but I do want to say that anytime there's a system, and I've seen a Reformed uh, New Testament scholar, a Calvinistic New Testament scholar say, yeah, yeah, you got to work. Anytime your system says that there's something you must do besides faith, they're really afoul of this grace through faith salvation that's not from the source of you. It is the gift of God, not from the source of works. Ek plus Ergon is, uh, is from the source. It's a, a genitive use referencing the source of works. You don't uh, get this salvation from any works. And the reason is clear so that no one may boast. No one can say, I saved myself. I gave up my sins. Listen to me. You can't give up your sins to be saved. No one ever has. It's not how it works. Should you give up your sins? Yes, and God will give you the power to do so as you walk by the Spirit, and that's Christian sanctification. The way you get eternal life is you trust in Christ as your Savior from your sins. It's faith alone. So don't fudge. And that way you cannot boast. And the crazy idea that, well, that makes faith a work, 
cannot be sustained in the passage. It's by grace through faith, and it's not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works. It can't, faith can't be a work. Faith is the recognition of the work of the other. And I can walk you through that sometime. I'd love to. But here's what happens is we don't memorize verse 10, and that's the part about the new creation. For of him, literally of him, and that's his, for of him we are workmanship. We are his workmanship, poema, his workmanship. Isn't that road nice, the parts that are done? It's going to be so nice. I want to, well, anyway, it's really neat out there. All right. We're his workmanship, and then we use a very special word, katizo, for creation. Created. You're a new creation. Created, that's new, in Christ Jesus. You weren't created new before you trusted in Christ, but having by grace through faith been saved, you are saved, and therefore you are created new. That means you've been created twice. He made you the first time as his image bearer. He made you the second time as his child. And this is the interesting thing. Why, God, did you make me? Why did you create me in Christ Jesus? So I could grow up spiritually? No. Why did you create me in Christ Jesus? So I could get my rewards at the Bama seat of Christ? No. Why did you create me in Christ? To glorify you? That's always the answer. But how? How will we glorify him? Willingly. Participating in his works. Because it says, he created us in Christ Jesus. Epi ergois agathois. Upon good works. And this is the use of epi plus the dative to indicate purpose. One of the rarer uses, but that's what it means. On the basis of the intention that you would do good works for the purpose of good works. Which good works? Any good works. Anything. I'm going to do the thing I want to do and it makes me feel good and I feel like I help someone. Wait a second. First Corinthians 13. Let's do some correlation. Even in verse 3, if I gave my body to be burned but have not love, I've, it profits me nothing. Jesus said in John chapter 15, abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit for without me you can do nothing. What, about, what does Jesus think about the things I've done that are not in him, that are not with him? He thinks they're nothing. Wow, I mean, even if I give all my possessions to, to feed the poor but not love, it profits me nothing. See, the Christian life is, there's a right way to do it and anything else is the wrong way. And it's abiding in Christ. It's the power of his spirit. It's according to his word. And so we stay close to the text, which is what I'm trying to do with you today. He cre- we were created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand. Which works he pro hetoimao to prepare before. Who did? God prepared before. Now, you've heard it translated ordained beforehand. People get all kinds of theological baggage out of that that it doesn't say, that that means that um, there's this special set of things that he foredetermined, and then you, you're, you don't really have a choice about walking them. It's always determinism wants to say you're fated to do something. But fate is a pagan concept that antedates uh, the biblical text uh, in the New Testament. And we're not talking about fate. We're talking about intention. We're talking about design, God's purpose. In other words, I think there are works that God set up beforehand for you to walk in that sometimes we don't. It's not inevitable that you'll walk in them. That's the problem. A lot of people want the Christian life to be this inevitable thing. Well, I'm saved, so obviously I'm going to do everything that God wants me to do. But that's not the, the nature of interpersonal relationship with God. For the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we 
in them, that in them we should walk. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. My English translation, put it in Greek order, is not much different from your English Bibles if you're reading uh, a consistent, intentional translation that's seeking to, to, to translate really word for word so you get thought for thought, like the King James or New King James or New American Standard. So not a lot of difference. We're new creatures in Christ. And so I have some ideas that we shared last week that I'm going to blow by because I want to get to the so what. How can this fact of my new birth, the new creation for a purpose, impact my daily life? Isn't it obvious that I have work that God wants me to do? He made me new in Christ for the work. Are you involved in the works that God prepared beforehand that you'd walk in there? Does this occur to you at all that the reason for your existence? Well, that's not all there is to my existence, the new birth. I mean, I have my normal life that's not being Christian. American Christendom, that's what we are. We're all compartmentalized. We've got my secular life. We've got my church life. I mean, I'm not reading my Bible at work, so you've got you to make divisions. Yeah, there's appropriate to the circumstance as God's agent in every situation. But I'm God's agent in every situation. So how can this fact of my new birth taking over everything about me, including my vision of myself, my view of myself, how can this impact my daily life? I have four suggested steps that seem to occur to me from the text. Maybe they'll help you. Four steps that I think will help you think this through. First is the question of identity. If I'm new in Christ for good works, then I need to let God's word tell me who I am. Not the world, not my peer group especially, not my professors or my teachers, not my scoutmaster, not even my pastor needs to tell me who I am unless he's telling me what the Bible says I am. Let God tell you who you are. God tells you you're new in Christ with a mission. You're an agent with a mission because he made these works for you to walk in. So that's your identity and that we slide out of that thought all the time. So interesting. We stop looking at God like Peter did and he's walking on water. We start looking at our situation or at ourselves and then we lose We lose perspective on who we actually are. Looking at me, focusing on me, I lose the thought that I'm new in Christ. Looking at him, it's not that I wish I had him or I wish I knew him. It's that I have him. I know him. And it's wonderful. So your identity, you let God's word establish who you are. Who are you? A person struggling with sin. A personal problem with your sin nature until death or the resurrection. It's a fact. A person who is responsible not to let sin have dominion over you in Romans 6 because it's a vanquished enemy. You don't have to obey the old master. Unbeliever has no option, really, but to walk in sin. You have the option to present yourself to God as as your body as an instrument of righteousness. And so this is the idea of God's word telling you who you are. There's a problem with sin, but it doesn't define you. It doesn't, is not to control you. What about, what about the rest of your life? Am I part of my generation? I recently discovered, based on somebody's chart, that I'm from Generation X. I don't know what that means. I remember when uh, 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 an R&B singer caught on fire in a Pepsi commercial. I guess that makes me Gen X. Do y'all remember that? See, if you're not Gen X, you didn't care. It happened in your life. You didn't care. If you are Gen X, you can't. If you're past Gen X, then you don't remember because it didn't happen in your lifetime. That's kind of thing. That's my identity. I'm, I'm one of these people. That's stupid. Congratulations, you're born in a certain year. 
right? This is my generation. Well, I'm, I've got regeneration. This is regeneration, right? And so let's let the Bible define our identity. Second, it requires repentance from other bases for identity. I have to say, change my thinking, repent, change your mind about what I consider to be my self-identity. What are your bumper stickers? What are your political persuasions? Are your bumper stickers reflective of your political persuasions? What, what, do you, what does your ink say? Like, what, what's your identity? It's an important question. Second step I would take is from verse 10, the purpose for your new identity in Christ. Like God's word establish what you're here to do. Does God's word tell you what to do with your life? This is why we object to God's word. First of all, it's challenging, but here you are, you're, we're in it. We're digging it, we're, we're studying it, we're chewing on it. But then it tells you there's something for you to do. And if you don't do it now, you're like, you're, you're, you're violating duty because you've, you're responsible, you've been told. Oh, I don't want, don't tell me. I don't want to know that my life is not for me to please myself. Again, I, I, this, this is a great message to preach in the United States. It's the culture I know. I suspect it can be tailored for other cultures, but it really works well here. So let God's word establish what you're to do. I didn't say your feelings. I didn't say your friends. And I certainly didn't say TBN or any other outlet of false teaching. God's word. Back to the Bible. Step three is the question of power. I know what I'm supposed to do, but how can I do it? I can't love as Christ is loved. I'm not good enough. And that's a good place to start from when, when you start to realize that the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God, the omnipotent third person of the Trinity, the agent in creation in Genesis 1-2 is in you to work, will and work what pleases God. You can love as Christ loved in God's power because he's in you. After taking in and trusting God's word, I'm going to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit's power. That's the power of this. This is a rationale. This is a thought process. How can I do, how can I live out the fact of my new position in Christ and what should I do? I'll have an identity. I'll understand that brings purpose that God told me in verse 10 and I need to connect to the power that comes with my position in Christ, the Holy Spirit working in me. And step four, of course, is performance. It's almost a good sermon. It's almost alliterative. You know, there's three P's and, but an I. I and three P's, that doesn't make for anything you're going to remember, except that I joke with you about it, and now you're like, okay, it's identity, purpose, power, and finally performance. The performance piece is where you actually do what God's word says to do. James is good at this. Be you doers of the word and not hearers only. And I heard it once taught that being a doer of the word is to believe it and, and process it in your soul so that it becomes applicable truth so that, that you can then live. But that's not what being a doer of the word means, actually to do it. When Jesus says, love one another, you're not a doer. Like, yes, I wish Jesus is, is my Lord and he told me we should love one another. I believe him. That's my responsibility. Thank you. That was a good message. But you haven't become a doer of the word till you do it. That's the performance factor. Do what God has called you to do. And this is what I run into in, in uh, grace-oriented circles of grace theology. Is th th they think if you, some of them think if you talk about believers' responsibility to do, that you're introducing some sort of legalism or some sort of, you know, um, self-effort or energy of the flesh. But that's impossible because the scriptures are 
replete. It's, it's every paragraph of the New Testament that there are expectations that God holds us accountable for choosing. And that means to actually do it. Do what God has called you to do. So I would say that the way these break, identity and purpose are the fact, whether you know it or not, it's true. Power and performance is, the, is, is how you would actually go about it. You can't do God's works without God working in you to do them. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can't benefit from the presence of the Spirit in you for those works unless you choose to go do the things. And so it could take you to many places in the Bible. And now there's a very strange thing for me to do. Any questions about that? Any, any questions about the, the issue of God's grace and God's power and God's expectations and God's commands and that we would actually do them? I'm, I'm serious, and I'm not asking for some sort of hard accountability. I, I think there's a lot of confusion about this. And I would really love to know if there are any, any questions here. Of course, if you object, you're not going to ask a question because that would be like there's a, there's a power differential and I'm in a strong position. And you, maybe you hit me afterwards. But to me, it's so straightforward that it's by grace through faith that we are saved for works that he prepared for us to walk in because we're this new creature. What has God called you to do? Make disciples is very evident, summarizes the entire New Testament. I mean, all of it. The entire New Testament is make disciples. And Jesus launches the ministry of the New Testament, the church age, in his farewell statement through in every gospel. We have a farewell statement from Jesus about this mission. In Matthew, it's the summary command. Mark echoes it. Luke gives you the power of the command. And John gives you the personal back and forth between Peter and Jesus about what this looks like to feed the sheep. Every gospel ends before Jesus ascends with this instruction of make disciples. What about my work? How is my work making disciples? Since you wouldn't take me up on my ask, my request for questions, can someone help me with a suggestion? I'm sorry, I just came from camp. That's how we do it. Anybody help me with a suggestion for what you could do with work or someone could do with their work? And I mean something. They're not a librarian at a Bible college. I'm talking about a plumber. You could share the word of the Big E with some of the spare time that you've saved up because you've been such a diligent laborer. So you have a little bit of free time. Maybe you even could take, this is, this is a lot to ask, a day of vacation to share Christ with people that are going to the lake of fire if they don't trust in him. And that's, that's a God thing. But he's, Romans 10, who's gonna, how are they going to believe unless they have a preacher? So you go to Big E with some of your spare time. How will you know what to say at the Big E? Well, you came here, plumber, ultralight aircraft maintenance uh, technician, that would be a really cool job, I think, ultralight aircraft maintenance. But you would have to deal with a lot of funerals because of the nature of that industry. That, that's tough. You would hang out with me a lot as a pastor. We go to funerals a lot. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's good. So when you have a message, when you're in, a, in a, a position in work where you have something to say, tailor your words. You know, 
um, you've got apprentices. They're not there to study the Bible, but they're going to learn how to do their craft from your example. And who knows how you can bear witness in your life and your example. You know that. We know that about you. Okay. So how you live your life. Are there conflicts at work? Excuse me, that was not correctly stated. And it's not because I was in Tennessee. That's just I'm sometimes lazy in my grammar. Is that how it works? Is, is it right to say that um, there are conflicts at work? Do you ever have conflicts at work? Have you ever thought about how you're resolving the conflict for the sake of Christ and the witness of this other person? Sometimes I think of that, well, in the army, sometimes I thought of that after we had already exacerbated the conflict. We made it worse by my reaction to it. And that's, you know, well, maybe next time. Missed the opportunity, blew it, whatever. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. So you're bumping against people in your work and someone has a need and so you could just, you know, go be clothed, be fed, I'm praying for you. Well, we love you very much. Absolutely. You are alive and that is the grace of God and we think it's, 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 it's borderline miraculous. The turnaround we've seen in the last month. God is... God is obviously phenomenal and fantastic and wonderful to us. Yeah, you, you're going to bounce against people wherever you are and how you meet their needs, how you go after them. I think we need to become more like wrestlers about this. Wrestlers, I've told you this before, wrestlers are always looking for a way in. They're always looking for that, oh, did you just stick your foot up? I got that now. And now they're pretty close to having you pinned or wrapped up into a pretzel. That's how I, my experience in wrestling, one semester I did it. Um, if you give some, a, a good wrestler anything, they're going to grab hold of it and vice down on and find a way to turn that into their advantage to get what they're after, which is, you know. So I'm not saying we're wrestling with people, but I am saying when they give you something like, I'm going through some hard times. All right. I'm going to start praying right now. God, give me wisdom about how to say something. And instead of saying, well, we've got our job to do, and so this is an obstacle to my one thing at a time mentality, which is how I live, say, okay, Father, we do have a job to do. Help me, like, not miss this opportunity to, uh, to, to pursue this and, and for the person's eternal life. So, yeah, there's lots of ways at work you could do this. And, of course, everything we give in offering to God is toward that objective of making disciples. That's what we're trying to do. What about my leisure time? That's where it gets, ah, I can't have leisure time for Jesus. You can, <laughs> right? Camperete is a lot of work, but it's not all work all the time. It's a lot of fun. Retreat ministry is, there's so much that happens at these things. I talked to two women at camp that have been counselors with us. One was a counselor this year, and I didn't know this. They didn't, I don't know, you know, all the stuff that goes on. Both of them became Christians at Camp Arete, uh, one in 2013 and one, I think, in 2014. They're back working it. I didn't know they weren't believers. I just knew they were, they were on the ball all through the years. 
believers in Christ because of this ministry. I'm glad we do it so we can have that uh, effect. All right. Can you walk with me for just a few minutes through chapter 4? Would you all do that, please? Ephesians 4. Because we have an application section for the fact that you have the new creation, that you are a new creation. And I, I, I got a great question about this, about putting on the old or putting on the, the new man after taking off the old man. And the theory was, the theory is out that's floating around out there, that if you're a believer in Christ, then you have already put on the new. And so that exhortation in Ephesians 4, 17 and following should, it just happens. It's just almost automatic. And that starts to look a lot like what I, the way I understand Reformed sanctification, the Reformed view, that the true believer is really just consistently advancing without reference to choosing, engaging God's word, you know, walking by the spirit, you know, actually living the life. And so I wanted to clear up a couple of things in Ephesians 4, really 17 through uh, 24. It really, the, the commands through 32 are helpful too, but if you'll just look, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of their hardness of heart. And they having become callous, have given themselves over to sexual immorality or sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That means that they're really greedy and, and hungry to get into impurity. It doesn't mean greed plus impurity. It's greed for impurity. Now, if you read this in the New American Standards, I put it up there, it seems like he's giving a command or an encouragement, some sort of responsibility he's laying on them. I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. It sounds like a command. Do you see what I mean? Well, the, the challenge is that it's not a command because of the grammar. It's that it's, it's saying you, you already don't walk. as It's saying that you don't do it. And uh, so you're like, ah, it's too late in the message for us to hear about grammar. Well, strap in. I consider verse 17 a summary command. And the part that's troublesome is no longer that you would walk or to walk because it's of the grammar there. Therefore, this I'm saying and testifying, martyreo, testifying in the Lord, testifying to his instruction for you is what it means. In the Lord that you no longer walk. And the reason it's hard is because you have this thing called an infinitive, and it's a very strange way to make a command. Let me show you what I mean. This, I'm saying. It's this word right here, this. Here we go with Paul in Ephesians giving us trouble with the word this again. What is this referring to? Well, this is what he's saying. What's the this? No longer you to walk. This is the, that you no longer walk. And the reason that we conclude that is because if you're taking notes on this and you really want to know the grammar, it's an appositional infinitive of indirect command. I said an appositional, meaning this goes with this. It's an appositional infinitive indirect command. And the best reference grammars say that. Bloster, Bruner, Funk, A.T. Robertson, Moulton, Howard, Turner, they all say that this is an infinitive of command. And that doesn't make it true. It means that the best Greek grammarians that we can find think that. And I think that's helpful. That's called research. They consider it to be somewhat rare but clear example of an indirect way of issuing a 
command in verse 17. Because it's an appositional infinitive, the this is the thing Jesus is saying that, that Paul is testifying to. So Paul is not saying, I, the apostle, command you. He does that sometimes. He doesn't do it in that grandeur, you know, silly uh, affectation. But he does issue commands as the apostle. But here he's not, it's not me, I testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. So it's obvious to me that this is an instruction from Jesus Christ. So even though Paul doesn't give it in what we call the imperative mood, it's an even stronger way because he's saying, this is, this is my testimony that Jesus wants this of you, that you not walk like the Gentiles. I'm testifying and saying, I'm saying and testifying in the Lord that you no longer are to be, present tense, present infinitive, no longer to be walking just as also the Gentiles, peripato, they're present walking. So it's an ongoing action the way it's described that you no longer are to be walking just as also the Gentiles are walking. So for someone to say that this is a description of what's already true and not a command from Jesus through Paul, they really have a heavy lift grammatically. And, and I'm barely scratching the surface on the analysis here. I'm just telling you, this is what you would look up and study and research if you really wanted to understand why we translate it the way we do. Notice that I put in, in um, italics words that are not. There's no Greek word for are. There's no Greek word for that. You is there, no longer is there, and to be walking is there in the Greek. But that's how it works in the grammar. See, Americans won't do this kind of work, but look, you Preston City Bible Church will. So what I'm saying, if, if you're wondering, what is he even talking about? Verse 17 is a command. It's not a statement of what's already true. It's a statement of what needs to be true. And here's how they walk. In the worthlessness of their minds, the matayotes, the worthlessness, the futility of their minds. It's all about thinking through here. Having been darkened in their understanding, thinking word, minds, thinking word, understanding, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance which is in them, thinking, not knowing, ignorance. Verse 18, because of their hardness of heart, the organ of thinking, not the physical organ, but the immaterial core of your being where your thinking is done, the thoughts and intents of your heart. Verse 19, such ones having become callous or numb, having given themselves over to ungodliness, aselgeia translated ungodliness or uh, bad worship or not, not irreverence, having given themselves over to ungodliness, Unto the pursuit of all uncleanness with greediness. Acatharsia, uncleanness. So they're, they're, they're running into the dirt. They're running into it and they, they can't get enough of it. It's with greediness. It's a pig that's hot. Pigs don't have sweat glands, I'm told. I was told as a little kid, pigs don't have sweat glands. So they go wallow in the mud puddle because they're trying to cool themselves off. This is how the person is that's callous and, and seared in their conscience. They're running like the pig into the slop, into the, into the, the, the mud bog uh, with greediness. They want to get that mud. But y'all, not thus did learn the Christ. And that's a good translation. Y'all, that's you plural, not thus you learned the Christ. So we'll put it in something respectable. But you did not in this way learn Christ, if indeed you heard him and in him you were taught, just as truth is in Jesus. 
So the contrast is how the world runs without Jesus and how you who have Jesus ought to live. It's really simple. You didn't learn Jesus in wickedness and in running into the slop. You learned Jesus in the truth, which comes with the light and cleanness and righteousness. That you set aside according to the former way of life the old man. And this is where the Greek scholars are like, oh, yes. Oh, they're never going to get this. The Greek scholars are so excited, especially the classical Greek scholars, who will tell you that they'll go pages and pages through classical Attic Greek without a verb anywhere, and you just have to pull the verb off of page three and put it back into page six, because that's how Greek works sometimes. So tough. Not Koine. Koine is a lot easier. This is easier Greek in, in the Bible, street Greek. But that old classical stuff in Attic Greek, it's a different, little bit different language. They don't have verbs together. He throws another infinitive at us. Pastor Dave, you were talking about infinitives in verse 17, and here you haven't repented. You're doing it again because Paul does it again, and he's grabbing the same grammatical feature of this thing from Jesus that you no longer walk, and now he's revisiting it and throwing it that they set aside. And it's the same thing. It's another appositional infinitive of command, and that's the structure of the passage so that you no longer walk, and so that you set aside. You see how those two go together? If I walk like the Gentiles walk, then I am embracing the old man, me, in sin, the way I lived as a sinful uh, person characterized by the flesh. According to the former way of life, the old man, not your sin nature, you under the dominance of your sin nature, the you expression of sin that is your sin nature carrying forth in your choices, your attitudes, your actions. That old man, which is being corrupted according to the lust of deceit. See, we learned Christ and truth, but there's this lust of deceit that uh, Satan and the world system and our sin nature are working together on to, to confuse us, to take us into what, well, you want this, not, not the good things of God. It's deceitful. But to be renewed, another infinitive, appositional infinitive command. It's the structure. So what do we say in verse 17? You no longer walk. In verse 22, that you lay aside the old man with its lusts, and in verse 23, that you be renewed. All of these are structured the same Greek. It's very tight, but you got to study Greek infinitives to, to, to see it. Again, work Americans are just not willing to do. And I'm not telling you who don't know Greek, I'm not telling you that you're wrong for not knowing Greek. I'm saying don't build your theology if somebody that does know Greek says, that ah, it's not doing that. It's not doing what you think. There's a reason why, and it's hard. An infinitive class, that was four or five hours of my life with Dr. Fanning. It was awesome. It was hard. And we had coffee so we could get through it. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And another, what is this grammatical thing we keep calling it? What's it called? An in an infinitive. It's an You're telling me an appositional infinitive of command. It's another one of those same things. It's structured all the way through. You no longer walk. You lay aside the old man. You, put, you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you put on. And to put on the new man. This was the challenge. Pastor, I think that you have already put on the new man. No. He commands you to put on the new man. But it's in the aorist tense. That's right. An aorist infinitive is describing the action in its completeness without respect to its results. It has nothing to do with when it happens. So that's a lot for 1203. But that you put on the new man, which with reference to God was created in righteousness and devoutness and truth. What am I saying? I'm saying that it is not inevitable that you who are destined for eternal life with Christ, who have eternal life now and are destined to rule with him in, in eternity in one way or another, 
There is no question about that, but whether you walk with him now is in question. And that's why we have chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians and all the application sections of the epistles. They're all appealing to our volition. They're all saying, so do you understand the doctrine I just taught you of your position in Christ? So walk worthy, live it out, act as, as if, since it's true, live in accordance. You show up at the banquet that's a, that's a black tie affair in a tuxedo. You don't show up in a bathrobe. Live appropriately to the situation that you're in. Like we're in rural eastern Connecticut. We don't have much call for bathrobes. Okay, show up to the barn dance in coverall or in overhauls, as they say down south. Don't wear a suit to the barn dance, right? You fit the situation. You're a new creature in Christ. And so you have this new man that God made. Put it on. Live it. Walk in it. Isn't that fantastic? Wait, wait, wait. As the kids say today, wait, what? I love it. I love to hate it. Wait, what? Everybody wait. Don't anybody say anything. I'm about to have a thought. What? I hate that. Wait, what? It's the new, uh, wait, what? What are you trying to say that we have to actually choose to walk in newness of life since it's commanded throughout the New Testament? I, I am. So be reinforced. Take it as God's grace that you can in the power of his spirit. And remember that God's spirit in you doesn't mean you will inevitably make choices. It means you're inevitably responsible to. And God is more powerful than your sin nature or your circumstances. Our Father, how, how, how blessed we are, how happy we are to know you. To know your word and know that we have faithful translations of the Bible. So often when we think we've found something that's the new wrinkle or the new thing, we have to be very careful and so often we find that, no, it's, it's an idea we have, but it's not what you've said. Give us the wisdom to see that, to embrace it, to love it, to say, uh, not as I will, but your will be done, even in understanding what you said. Father, let us never take for granted that we're new creatures in Christ. Help our kids think that way. Help them bring that with them into this world that is a meat grinder and it wants to devour them. And in this world that wants to tell them something different about their identity than what you've said. That, that something different about what will make them happy or give their significance to their lives or any of the many ways that Satan attacks our children. Father, help them see, help us all see the riches of your grace so that we're grateful. We live lives of joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.